Ukrainians are suffering. One million refugees have been forced to leave their homes. Millions of human beings are crying out for hygiene products, food and blankets. You can help. I am proud to announce the launch of our Writers for Ukraine initiative, the One Million Word Challenge. We are calling on all writers to take up arms and heed our biggest ever challenge to raise money for basic support in these unprecedented times. From Wednesday the 9th to Tuesday the 15th of March, writers from across the world will be banding together to achieve a combined word count of one million words. Pick up your pens, flex those fingers, donate to the cause, and write the words that will literally change the world. Writers for Ukraine. The world needs your words. Find out more at activatedauthors.com forward slash Ukraine. Activate your energy. Welcome to the Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. What is up, Activators? Welcome to another episode of the Activated Authors Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the incredible Caitlin Duncan. Caitlin is a hybrid author of adult and young adult books and has ghostwritten over 40 novels. When she's not writing, she's obsessing over many, many television series and hanging out on YouTube where she shares her writing process and all the bookish things. Caitlin recently published her debut nonfiction book for writers, Take Back Your Book, an author's guide to writer's version and publishing on your terms. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. No, no worries. I am excited. And I think I we should probably put a disclaimer that we know each other. You know, we, I'd, I'd like to consider us friends. That might be a bit yes. forward to say on the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun conversation because, I mean, we talk about a lot of, you know, writing things about the, the bookish things all the time. Um, but it's rare that we have to kind of like concentrate time, just me and you, in yes. which I basically get to control the narrative of the conversation. So I hope I hope you're ready for that. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm a little scared, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, you don't need to be scared. Um, but I did want to start because I, I so I, the last few mornings, one of the big features of my morning when I'm having my coffee and stuff, I've been watching you your, your vlogmas vlogs on your youtube channel um how, what was the what was the incentive for doing the vlogmas because it seems like quite a big chunk of work to be doing each day to actually like you know film the vlog put the vlog together and then edit it and then put it out the next day or the day after what was it that made you go i'm gonna i'm gonna do this for this christmas uh the I've been watching Vlogmas for creators that I watch for years. And I started my YouTube channel in 2019 and I was like, oh, let's, let's do it. And then I would do some research and a lot of creators say how difficult it is. Like it tends to look very flawless and it tends to look like very fun, but it's a lot of work, especially if you're sort of doing that traditional Vlogmas where you uh, record on December 1st and December 2nd, you, you have it uploaded. So it's like, you have to figure out your day and there's a lot of planning involved and it's sort of evolved throughout the years where like people will make content ahead of time and then schedule for December. And I sort of started at, <laughs> at that point because I'm a mom and I have a full-time job and I have an author career on top of YouTube and everything. So, um, 
I just thought it would be fun this year. And I, I don't really know why I did it still like, because it is very difficult. I eventually caught up with myself um, because I got my booster COVID shot and I was laid out for about two and a half days. Mm. So I got really behind on it. Um, so I cut out weekends and it, I don't know, it's just a lot of fun, like to have the final product, but um, it's definitely a lot of work. Mm. And my initial motivation for it was mostly, um, I was looking at some metrics in terms of that. And I, they do say it helps with like watch time and things like that. So I w- it was more of an experiment for me on my analytics, um, but it's a lot of fun. I don't know if I would do it again though, <laughs> <laughs> but I will like finish this year. Yeah. So. And you seem to be really, from what I've seen, you're very, very um, just sharp on trying and experimenting and doing new things. So it's like, it, I, as a viewer, I like watching your YouTube channel, just seeing some of the stuff you do, because it's very, um, it's just interesting. And seeing behind the the curtain of you know what it's like to just sit down and write and work and all the different parts like you say juggling like a full-time job and the mumhood and everything else is just it's it's fun to watch especially I don't know if that gives any validity to it from my side but I really very much enjoy watching them oh thank you you're very welcome Um, (laughs) why don't you give the audience a little overview of your writing journey so far yeah, absolutely. So I was one of those kids who enjoyed stories and um, I was really interested in movies and the behind the scenes. And I would, you know, I'm going to show my age here, but like we had to like download and print off like scripts and stuff. And it was like all PDFs off the internet at the time, whatever that looked like. Um, so a lot of it was just me like exploring story and structure. And I used to like take part in plays and everything. Um, so that was like really my introduction to story. And then um, sort of at the time, it, it seemed like you had to be an author and you couldn't be anything else. And I was very much encouraged as a child to like do what I wanted to do, but like also make sure I had a full-time paycheck uh, when I got older. So I sort of veered away from that and I kept my love for movies and the behind the scenes and everything. Um, And then in about, I think it was 2009 um, when like Twitter was gaining popularity. um, I saw a lot of authors who I admired, like talk about their full-time jobs that wasn't authoring. So I was like, you can do both. So that like (laughs) sort of like reignited my, my, my passion for story and everything, because I always like wanted to express myself in that sense. So I, um, a story came to me, uh, that's my debut story, uh, soul taken, which was reverted back to me. And I guess we could probably go into that a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that story came to me and then I found out about NaNoWriMo. Um, so actually every year since then, um, I participated in NaNoWriMo and I just only wrote the book in, in November uh, because I did have a full-time job at the time. And then I started to get really serious and started uh, querying. And um, I just sort of wrote the same story over and over, just trying to like figure it out and get the best product I could. Uh, and then I ended up selling it to uh, Karina UK at the time. Uh, they were a part of Harlequin. It was a digital first imprint. Um, I sold my book as a trilogy. Um, so from then on, I published um, 13 books with them. They eventually turned into HQ Digital when um, HarperCollins uh, purchased Harlequin. And sort of in between there, um, I had my child and we, uh, I started to get like, thankfully I was home. Um, I was, I'm very like, you know, uh, appreciative of that, but I started to get a little bored <laughs> when I was like, you know, 
baby was little and, and I started ghostwriting at that time. So I was sort of double dipping um, and exploring my, my writing through ghostwriting. And I found it very much so freeing. I sort of figured out you know, the nuances of different genres because I, I wrote middle grade, uh, young adult and adult novels. Um, so I've sort of, I've had the bug, I guess, since like 20, uh, 2009. And then I just really haven't stopped. Um, and then this year was my first year delving into self-publishing and nonfiction. There are so many directions that we can go. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's in my brain. Um, like, I guess one of the places I want to start is, you know, we've already highlighted the fact that you, you've got a lot going on. You've got the YouTube, you've got your own work, you've got mom, you've got the full-time job. Um, obviously when baby was little, you were doing ghostwriting and things as well. Obviously there's a very, you know, innate burning desire there to, to write and to create. Um, but how, how do you balance it or how do you keep productive in all these areas and try and keep all those plates spinning? Um, well, I have no problem with being productive because there's always a million things to do, um, especially <laughs> because, as you've seen, I, I have like just a love for story in general, which I can go off in many different directions with that. Um, just in terms of balance, it's it's a it, it's an evolving process, um, especially, as you know, having a child go through different um, times of their life seasons. Um, I'm constantly I'm a little more adaptable now than I used to be with my schedule. Um, so I sort of just have to go on that path. So I make sure that, um, you know, the thing that pays the bills, my full-time job that takes precedence and so does my family. And then I sort of fit things, you know, in between, um, writing to me is the most important thing. Uh, so I sometimes will put YouTube aside, uh, when I, you know, when I have to, um, you know, usually when I'm on a deadline for a book, um, so it's just a balance. Um, I create a lot of, at least throughout the past couple of years, I've created a lot of systems to make things move faster. Um, I have like a system for my YouTube channel from inception of the idea to final upload. Um, so I make sure I don't miss anything uh, when I am busy. And that really just helps me, you know, get through the process. Mm. So I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love the fact that you say it is an evolving process because it really isn't like one thing that I really lament at the minute is that um, my son has just his bedtime's been pushed back just because, you know, he wasn't going to sleep at the hours and he's getting older. And like as lovely as that is to have more time with a the kid, there's also a very small window in the day in which you have to yourself because obviously the kids go to sleep. And I've just lost a big chunk of that, which is, you know, swings and roundabouts. Um how so you said obviously you know writing is the priority it's the the thing that comes first at all times has it always been that way or are there points in which other stuff because I know that for me personally that I know that is the message that goes to my brain but sometimes I will just forget that and be concentrating on other things and then it's a few weeks have passed and I'll go oh shit now I should be focusing on on the writing is that something that you know you're very good at keeping in place or does that sort of drift as well for you it's that's the problem for me half the time is that I'll put books first like the creation of books but not necessarily like the things I should be doing so I have like the opposite problem where yeah. instead of doing all of the admin and doing the things I should be doing the research and stuff I'm so focused on the book and then I finish the book and I'm exhausted and then I'm like oh I have this whole stack of things I need to be doing um so so for me I'm I have like instated admin days for myself to do all of those other things. And it also gives me a little bit of a break when it comes to the creativity. Um, but as I'm in different parts of the process, if I'm drafting or editing, like that usually just takes precedence for me. Mm. And what does your morning routine typically look like? You say you do most of it in the morning. Yes. So I try uh, to do all of my author 
things uh, between five and seven in the morning, I found that is my most creative time. So that is a struggle to, to do. Um, I don't want to do too much admin in the morning. Usually I would reserve that for after bedtime uh, for, for kiddo. And um, the morning is just like my most creative time. So, you know, I lose a little bit of sleep. I don't get as much as I have to or need to, but um, you know, it works for me. And, and I, a previous job that I had, I had to be at work at six o'clock. So like it's ingrained in me to, to get up that early. Mm. I know it scares a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> like you say as well, when, when you have the boundaries, obviously having a, a child that goes on a certain schedule, like it, it definitely helps to push you. I was um, talking to someone earlier and I was uh, very, very sort of similar conversation with sort of um, boundaries and reasons. And I, I am a little bit sad that this has gone at the same time. I'm not for many reasons, but in my previous relationship, I used to get up early and all it would take is one alarm and I'd be up because I'd be so worried about like disturbing my ex. And, mm. you know, you get up because you don't want to keep pressing snooze and then it affects someone else. So you just get up and do the thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just being very, very uh, strict on that. How, so between five and seven, your most creative times, what does that five to seven look like? Is it a case of waking up and going straight to the keyboard? Is it, do you give yourself sort of like a little time first? Is there any like journaling or coffee or what does that kind of look like to, to get to the, the keyboard and, and make that happen? I mean, I'm an up and go uh, because mm. I do have that short amount of time. I go downstairs, I feed the cat. Uh, uh, I have a rescue cat and the previous owners, um, you know, they have passed, unfortunately, but uh, they were apparently up at four in the morning feeding the cat. So <laughs> she's ready to go at four. So I feed the cat and I get my coffee and I'm straight up, um, you know, in my office and I do, you know, as you know, uh, we, you know, we take part in sprints sometimes. And I have another author friend that I, I do sprints with. I find that, um, I don't necessarily need motivation or accountability, but I find it very much so helps, mm. um, the mornings that I don't get to do sprints with others. I find that I'm not as focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I can be, but I try to get to the keyboard as soon as possible. Um, jump on sprints. I have playlists for all of my for all of my books, so that tries to get me in the mood straight away. Um, because otherwise, I would I would miss out on that time, and I never really um, plan on doing anything at night just because I'm exhausted half the time. So I really really have to focus in those two hours. Mm. Are there mornings where you struggle to get to the keyboard, and if so, how do you overcome that? There are times uh, that I'll, you know, hit the snooze and go on like my phone or whatever. Um, but most of the time I, I do get up. I think for me having, I found that once I put my phone further, that's my alarm clock, further away from my bed, <laughs> the better, mm-hmm. because it's a fact of when it was right next to my bed, you could just scoot it over yep. and look at it. Yep. <laughs> uh, and now I have to actually get up. So like me going back to bed, you know, it doesn't really happen as often, uh, anymore. Cause it's like, you're up, you're up anyway. Like, yeah. You're going to lay back down. And then I know I would definitely fall asleep if I laid back down. So. <laughs> yeah. I've got, um, so I've, I've done the same where I fell into an awful pattern, especially sort of towards the last few, um, weeks living with my parents before I moved into this place where my phone just went to on the bedside table next to me. And I've very deliberately set it up so that my phone is on a charging stand way away from my bed. And then next to that, I've got a little like sunrise alarm clock that okay. you set the time that the alarm goes off and a half an hour before that, it slowly starts getting lighter. So it emulates I've the sun. I've heard of those. Yeah, it's fantastic because it's it's meant to, yeah, emulate the sunrise and work with your circadian rhythm so that before you've even woken up, your body started to react. And I, I, I will say I definitely 
can feel the difference from the mornings where I'm woken up by lights versus when it's pitch black and my alarm goes off. Yeah. Makes a big difference. This time of year, at least over here, is very difficult. It's very Mm -hmm. dark until about 6.37. (laughs) Yeah, because you're on the same... I want to say latitudinal line yes. pretty much as the UK. So it should, yeah. I think it's around the same, almost like lightwise, which is no fun. Um, having watched your YouTube as now I make no secret of, um, you mentioned a lot of bookish things for those who don't know what are bookish things. Uh, that phrase for me is a bit of a catch all. Um, so I say in my intro, we talk about the writing process and all the bookish things. So uh, that sort of gives me a little bit of freedom with my content to talk about publishing, to talk about writing craft, uh, business with being an author. Um, I do a biweekly chat with two of my uh, good friends. Uh, we what's called the Writers Hive, um, and we just basically pick topics. Um, some topical, some, you know, depending on time of year or just things that we think of about the writing process. And we just, we just have a chat about it. So it's, it's my little catch-all, which, yeah. uh, which I enjoy. Yeah, no, I love that. And is there sort of um, a structure to the, I know you obviously mentioned sort of the broad spectrum of bookish things, but do you have in your head a structure of what you do with your YouTube or is it a case of, you know, almost like with the vlogmas there's almost like seasons of content that come out to help writers at certain points um yeah I would say sometimes so like I'll try to do some inspirational like nano-ish content during NaNoWriMo um or near any of the camps um but mostly I just sort of go by what I'm thinking at the time I like to be as transparent as I can be with like specific projects that I'm doing so I did a video all about how much it costs to, you know, to publish a book and things like that. But I try to just go where the inspiration is because I do find this process of doing YouTube. Like I like to come up with an idea and I like to sort of storytell through it when I can. So I'll, I'll write about it. I'll write a script in a sense. Um, and I'll sort of explore a topic. Um, and then I just, it's a fun hobby for me to do YouTube, even though it's sort of author related. Uh, but I really enjoy like that structure of it. So I try not to limit myself too much to specific things and I don't like to repeat myself. Um, so yeah, I just kind of go where, where I'm inspired. Mm. And what would you say to authors that are interested in taking up the YouTube mantle and getting involved and recording themselves? Um, Cause I know that one of the main arguments that comes out of people who are thinking about it is that fear of putting themselves on camera and how they'll look like, how was that journey for you when you started YouTubing? I think it's a, it's a valid concern that a lot of people go through. I went through it. Um, It was more for me because I like to do a lot of research before I do things um, just because I want to make sure I'm doing it quote unquote, right. Um, But when it comes to YouTube and you'll hear this from many creators who've been on the platform for a while, like their early stuff, where they are now looks very amateurish, but at the time it's, it's like the best they can do. They're still exploring like cameras and angles and um, how they speak. Like I've learned so much about how I speak (laughs) and things that I do and like clicks and ums and, and everything like that through my uh, YouTube. And I found that it certainly helped a lot with, you know, doing live videos and and live podcasts such as this. Um, and it's, definitely given me confidence. So I would say, if you have any inclination of doing it, turn on a camera, turn on, you know, a webcam or a camera or or a phone and just do it. You don't have to publish it if you're not, you know, happy with it. But I I think it definitely has benefits um, and it can certainly help 
you as a person explore yourself and you know if you do choose to do more author tube stuff um explore your process a little bit and it's a fantastic community Mm. Uh, we do a lot of events throughout the year so it's fun yeah because you are very networked it seems with a lot of other youtubers and author tubers how how did you grow that network and so do you actively reach out to people or is it a case of you know they get in contact with you it's usually reaching out at first. Um, YouTube is a funny sort of platform where it's just like all sort of comment based. Um, and you sort of have to go off if you want to have like a private conversation or you can, you know, you can email the person or you can go on Instagram or anything like that. So it's more of just reaching out. And I found that a lot of like author tube groups sort of come from when you start. Um, so usually um, we have what's called like the author tube newbie tag and you can follow that tag on YouTube. So it's people who are new and you sort of start from there. Um, yeah. So it's, it's more about reaching out. So while you're sort of discovering yourself, you really have to come out of your shell a little bit if you're interested in more of that community aspect. Yeah. So you have to be very, very, well, not very, very, but you have to be somewhat active in order to actually start generating that, that buzz and reaching people and, and getting involved. Yeah, I mean, initially, you can start off, you know, with your, um, with your own community, such as family and friends and everything. But if you're interested in more authors, um, you kind of have to reach out a little bit. And, and I'm not saying at all that I'm an extrovert. I'm a very much an introvert. Um, so this, it took a while for me to reach out and everything. But definitely, if that's an interest of yours, I'd say go for it. And one thing I really like that you said there is the evolutionary journey of seeing where people have come from and where they are now. Um, yeah. I know that one of the things I like doing, I don't know why I like doing this, it's somewhat a form of self-torture, somewhat um, nostalgia, but I like to go back to some of the first podcast episodes I recorded when um, I did the story studio with Luke Condor back in 2016. And just hearing yourself and hearing the evolution of, you know, your equipment and like you say, the way that you talk, um, the inflections of your voice change and become like much more, um, I guess, emphatic yeah. <laughs> as you get more down the line, you realize how monotone you are when you start. <laughs> and I, I, I get a big buzz off of, seeing someone do really well um to so say like yourself and looking back at like the earlier videos which i have done not to creep you out um, <laughs> and also with people like jenna where you look at like where she started versus where she is now because i love i love seeing that journey i think one of the things that really irks me um is when people get to a certain point and they get rid of all that earlier stuff because it's not the quality of what they want now yeah. um I, I don't know about you but I, I really like tracking that journey yeah, the like you can private videos, and I know a lot of people do that. Um, the only videos that I've sort of privated was I sort of was on the uh, the edge of like booktube content where we talk about books and author tube where you more talk about writing. So I started like straddling that line, and I found that like I didn't get a ton of views on those. So you know sometimes you have to play with the algorithm. So you mm-hmm. you know I privated those, but you know when. I, I, as much as I would love to private a lot of them, like, unless I said something like totally wild, you know, I just leave it out there because, Mm. um, for me, while they may be a little cringy, like, I, I hope that, you know, maybe someone will stumble upon me and be like, oh, I I feel, you know, I can connect with you and all that. And I'd hate Mm. to like lose that opportunity by privating something just because I'm embarrassed or whatever. Mm. And it's different stages for people as well. So the stage that you were when you were making those earlier videos, someone yeah. might be coming into you at that point in which they're on that same level and might resonate more with that than they would with sort of the more polished, more like um, trained Caitlin. I just, yeah, yeah I, I'm a big believer in the different levels of content and how, how people can get involved. Yeah. Um, we've mentioned that, well, you mentioned that obviously you got involved with traditional publishing uh, and you've had quite a, a few books traditionally published and you now get to the point where some of those rights are being reverted to you. 
Um, tell us a little bit about how your experience was with traditional publishing, because, I mean, full transparency, the last few authors that have come on have been very, very stringently self-published. And I want to add a bit of balance to that if I can. Yeah. So how, how has your experience with traditional been? Um, I mean, I'd say it's pretty positive overall. I mean, um, I don't know where I would be right now without traditional publishing like that, um, you know, in 2012, you know, even though people were doing really well self-publishing at the time, um, I just didn't feel comfortable or confident enough. And I think working with um, Karina and HQ Digital and, and the editors were so lovely and it just really gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and it was positive. I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to a lot of, uh, different, you know, aspects of traditional and independent, uh, publishing. But, um, once I sort of gained that confidence, there was a lot of things that like, I just didn't like as much as I get, I suppose I used to, um, you know, there was sometimes lack of communication and I go into it in some parts of my book. Like I am in no way knocking traditional publishing at all, but there are just some things you sort of, um, you know, you deal with and, you know, you have to, to, to see if that's something you're okay with dealing with. So there was at points, lack of communication, you know, I would send an email and it wouldn't, they wouldn't get back to me for two months. And for someone, um, I didn't mention that I've never had an agent. Um, and usually that's sort of your liaison at times. Um, so that's something I had to deal with. Um, there was quite a big turnover um, at some point with the with the editor. So you're sort of and for any traditional authors, that's like so devastating to lose your to lose your agent because this is the person who went to acquisitions for you. They want your book, they love your book, and then they leave. And it's like, okay, what happens? Like you could get another stellar editor, or you could get someone that like your book was just thrown on their lap, basically. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, anything bad about that. It is what it is, but um, it's definitely taught me to have more confidence and also um, sort of how to take control uh, of my, of my career. So when you sign traditional contracts, I mean, you have option clauses and you have reversion clauses and everything that you have to, um, you know, abide by when you sign them. Um, so, as I didn't have an agent, I sort of, I had four contracts total with them. And with each contract, I was like a little more like, I want this and I want that. And, um, you know, will you be doing audiobooks or can I keep, you know, the rights to that or things like that. And, um, my last contract, I actually, uh, retained the film rights, uh, for my two women's fiction novels. So, um, that was something that, one thing I do talk about a lot with with take back your book is like your ability like you have to have enough confidence to like say what you want and have the and be prepared to walk away mm -hmm. um so I was prepared to walk away if I didn't get the film rights um for those books you know full transparency uh, because and this is a pipe dream for a lot of authors but like I did write a Christmas novel and you know Hallmark and Lifetime and Netflix and all them, they're always looking for, for a sweet romance uh, for the holiday season. So I was like, well, I think this book could do well eventually in, in that light. Um, so I was like, I'm going to ask for the rights. And if I don't get them, then I may just move on with this book elsewhere. Um, and, and they did give it to me. So um, yeah. I think I veered I mean, off from the original question. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. Um, and I mean, since you're, you've kind of taken us into your, your book, Take Back Your Book, yeah. um, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of where that idea came from and some of, you know, what the book is about? 
Yeah, absolutely. I can show it for the, hey. the video viewers. Um, yeah, so this sort of came out of a conversation with a friend of mine where I was talking to her and I was a little bit frustrated. So at this point, I had already had my uh, my debut trilogy. It, the reversion period was up. It wasn't selling uh, to a certain threshold. So I asked for the rights back and they gave them back to me. So I was in the process of deciding um, the path for them. And I was talking to a friend about how frustrated I was with the lack of information out there about rights reversion. Um, there are plenty of articles that are like, this is how you do it, but not many people tell you what to do after. And, you know, you sort of take self-publishing and there are so many things you can do with self-publishing. So for a traditional author who was like sort of told and like, you know, brought along on this sort of treadmill of like publishing, like I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was the right thing to do. Um, so I was like, there's no guide out there for anyone. And as I was going through it, I was like, well, why don't I write one? Like <laughs> at least sharing my process um, and like things that I considered and sort of from that book, I sort of went through like a retrospective of what I've been through and then also looked toward the future of all the possibilities for any book that is reverted. And it's sort of to help, you know, authors like me who are sort of in that process of like, I don't know what to do at all. Okay, here's your guide. Here's all of the things you could do. Now you need to make your decisions based on that. Mm -hmm. So that was my hope was to inspire um, others that like, they're not alone if their books aren't selling because reversion sort of comes from like a quote unquote failure, mm. like perspective. Um, and it, it's sometimes I've been through the gamut of emotions, embarrassing. Um, you're like fearful if you're ever going to get another deal. Um, and you know, you don't really want to talk about it, but there are so many authors that I did speak to that sort of just did all of this without saying anything. And they just like, got their book back and then self-published it. But it's, I find there's strength in community, especially in the publishing mm -hmm. industry where, um, you know, a lot of these things in trad publishing are coming to light where, you know, just a little bit at a time, we can sort of like inspire authors to, to have more control over their careers than some may be given in the trad space. I think, yeah, a lot of it comes back to transparency as power. Like you yeah. mentioned right at the beginning of this interview, the fact that, you know, you didn't know that you could be an author and a full-time worker and a mum mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff all at the same time. And, and so many people who you think are one thing are actually not behind the scenes. And that's one of the things that I like about sort of just the transparency of what the internet and social media has given you. And particularly in this situation, the fact is that, you know, like you say, a lot of people pursue so hard to be able to sign that dotted line and to get their books into the hands of uh, an agent, a publisher, and to get it out there. That there are, you know, hundreds, if not, well, definitely thousands and thousands of people who have gotten to that point where, you know, the sales slow because the publishers aren't pushing them or, you know, trends change and things. And I like the fact that, you know, you saw this gap where there was, there was this lack of information. And so you use that to document your journey. And, you know, I've, I was lucky enough to be one of the, the arc readers of Take Back Your Book and to like see the first instances of it. And even for people who aren't traditionally published, there's a lot of information there about um, just almost just ways to leverage your book the best way like if you are looking at pursuing traditional there's kind of like some stuff to be aware of to help you get the best out of that deal um like you mentioned before after a couple of different deals you you've, you found more and more confidence to actually negotiate and ask for the things that you want and i think a lot of people with that first contract especially are so scared of it flying away that they don't want to touch it or break it or you know 
even try pushing themselves forward. But there is a lot of power in, you know, that knowledge, that sharing, that sort of bringing it to life. Um, I do think that, you know, Take Back Your Book was a fantastic read for me, even as someone who hasn't gone into that traditional space. Well, thank you. That's that's nice to hear because I think it changed a lot. You were one of the first. Um, so it's changed so much like since you read it and that was, you know, you guys uh, helped me with the structure and everything. So I, I so appreciate the feedback and everything. I'm glad you got something out of it too. Yeah, no, you're very welcome. No, it was, um, it's always an honor to, to read people's work before it actually yeah. comes out. Um, but yeah, like I say, it's it's well worth checking out. I think there's a lot in there that people of all stages can, can take away from that. Um, and the interesting thing with that book is that you self-published that. So yes. that was, if I'm right, your first experience with self-publishing. What was yes. that experience like for you? Um, it was a lot. And, and, you know, as I mentioned before, I try to do systems where I can. And I knew that I wanted to document how I self-publish because that's sort of my intent moving forward. I mean, I will never say never to try publishing again, but my intent moving forward is to self-publish. So it was quite a ride. It was so interesting to figure out, uh, you know, even just like the book production side, like what pages need to be in there. Like with trad publishing, I basically just wrote like the meat of the book. I didn't have to worry about copyright um, or any like back matter or anything. So I, it did a lot. I took a lot of I did a lot of research. I, you know, I took a lot of books and I used them as inspiration and what I wanted my book to look like. And then sort of on the publishing end, it was um, nuances of all of the vendors. I go direct to the vendors that I can go to direct. I don't use an aggregator um, for like, you know, Amazon or Apple books or anything. Like I go direct and then I use uh, drop to digital. So I had to learn all of these new platforms and nuances um, and I had to make sure like, you know, the, the summary was, was perfect. So that took a lot. And, uh, you know, just even like book sizes and book page, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the pages, like, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many different options. And like, then I had to learn vellum as well. Cause I format my book. So it's, it was a, it actually only took place over a couple of months. I think with this book, I wrote it so quickly because I was just bursting with, uh, with getting this out and, um, you know, helping other authors when I could. So it was quite a process and I made sure to document all of it to make sure that the next time, um, it goes a little bit faster. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's all you can do is get a starting point and then grow on it from there. Um, and one thing as well that I don't think either of us mentioned was that you actually had other people um, give almost case studies as well for this, other yes. people who have been through that experience. Um, how did you go about reaching out to them and, and getting them involved? Because I can imagine that uh, that would be quite tricky terrain to, to come over with some people. Yes, um, I did come up with like really enthusiastic authors. So I sort of pooled my network first. So I knew uh straight away that two authors of, in my network definitely had their rights reverted. They're both in the book um, and they were happy to give their case study. Um, other ones, I sort of had to reach out of my pool, out of my network a little bit um, to just, I, I am in a strengths forum. I don't know if you've talked about strengths at all, but Luke Clifton's mm -hmm. strengths and yeah, we got a Simon and everything. And um, 
they have forums on there once you take their courses. So I asked people in my forums uh, based on my strengths, if anyone wanted to talk about it. Um, there were some people who never got back to me. There were some people who were very uh, wary of what I was doing with the information. And I also like, um, so I had them fill out a survey just to sort of have that structure of, of the, the interviews and how they went. And some people just wanted to give just the information, but didn't want to be credited in the book and everything. So it ran the gamut and I was really happy with the people that I had. Um, and in that vein, I was planning on just having, you know, positive results of getting rights reverted. And then um, I'm in a group of authors in my imprint and sometimes there are struggles with it. And every now and then reversion comes up because, you know, it's an instance of my book isn't selling, they're not promoting, things like that. And I reached out to the group and I said, would anyone want to talk about like the negatives of rights reversion and how hard it can be sometimes um, to, to get your rights back? And I had a lovely author, uh, Terry Nixon, talk about her, her process. And it was just I think it added a little bit more to the book because while I want to inspire people to take control, there are instances where you may feel even more discouraged because your book is not selling and you're not getting your rights back for many different reasons. So um, it, I, I loved that part of the process and it really, I think, made the book a little better um, where people may not see themselves in my story, but they may see themselves in someone else's story. Yeah, it just makes it more robust i did um, a similar thing with collaboration for authors in which a author friend of mine very kindly donated an essay on a collaboration that went horribly wrong and so that was in the appendix of that book where people could could obviously read the ways to make things work and all the positives and there was those case studies in there but then i think adding that that negative as well it just it just makes it more realistic and gives people that almost cautionary tale of you know even if you follow all these steps the reality is that sometimes things don't go right um i can imagine that is a really frustrating part of the process once you've you know signed the agreement and you get to that reversion period and then you see that you know a threshold isn't quite hitting or it's just hitting to the point that you mm -hmm. can't get your rights back um i mean have you had that frustration yourself with some of your books oh yeah like i've um i have asked for a book rights back and the publisher would say oh we're, we're gonna get new covers we're gonna do this we're gonna promote it more um and you kind of just have to go with it. I mean, they, they do have, you know, some language within contracts and I'm not a lawyer, so don't take anything I say <laughs> as legal advice, but um, you know, that the, the, the publisher has the opportunity to sort of like do these things uh, to help, you know, bring new life to the book and you just have to sort of go with it. Um, and what I do recommend is that you, there are some checks and balances, like make sure that they're doing the things that they're going to do and that you keep checking, you know, um, depending on the contract, like every six months or so to make sure to check your numbers and see if you're still in that threshold or not. And then just keep asking if that's your real intent, like follow-up is definitely key. Tough game. And there are people out there who are, um, and not slamming anyone particularly, but I know that I've certainly come across people who are in a position where they are almost taking advantage of authors who are a little less in the know of contracts. So before signing anything, certainly like check it out, look into it, make sure you understand each point, because that is where that is the moment in which you can claim your strength for later on if things don't go well. 
Yeah, and I, I would recommend if you don't have an agent, because agents are, you know, they negotiate contracts for authors, like you definitely look into hiring a literary lawyer, specifically someone who looks at these types of contracts. Um, I mentioned in the book that I made the mistake of having just any lawyer look at my, mm -hmm. uh, my first contract and they're like, yeah, that's good looks pretty boilerplate, but there are so many little nuances when I actually like reached out and hired someone, I believe that was for my third contract. Um, and they were able to point out such little nuances that I didn't like, I sort of gl glossed over. If you've ever read a contract, you know, they can be pretty dry and, yeah. and some of the language is not quite like how you would interpret things. So, um, you know, there's also organizations as well um, for authors that do have lawyers on staff or they give um, advice. And I would go in that direction um, if you felt at all that you didn't understand every single piece of information in your contract. Like it's so important that you understand it before you sign it. Especially if it's for, you know, seven, 10, 15 years, however yeah. long it is. Like that's, that's a long period of time and a lot can change in that time. Sure. Yep. Um, so you self-published Take Back Your Book. You've since mm -hmm. self-published a fiction book as well. Um, two fiction books, just one fiction book at this point. Just one so far, yeah. <laughs> um, and you said, you know, after you self-published uh, Take Back Your Book, that you started to build the system and then, you know, you learned things to go into the second one. Was there anything that comes to the top of your mind that you can think of from that first book that you were very um, aware of going into publishing Soul Taken? Um, the... I suppose I ran into an issue sort of with uh, the paperback at the time uh, with Ingram Spark and everything like that was something I should have known, but I didn't like sort of realize too. like, so there was a big delay with, um, with the paperback and I really wanted it out on, um, you know, publication day. And so, so I knew with Ingram Spark, you can do the pre-order and everything, but I just like really did not feel comfortable like putting that book out until I held it and I could mm -hmm. see it and everything. So um, that was something I became very much aware of after, you know, publishing Take Back Your Book because I had a little bit more time uh, to sort of go through and, and look at all the details of Take Back Your Book since it was my first one. Um, yeah, so I, I, I suppose I had to be... Oh, aware more about uh, shipping times and creation times of the, the paperback, but everything else went pretty smooth. Um, once you sort of set up on all of these platforms, uh, but these vendors like Amazon and all that, like it's pretty easy to upload books after that. But um, I struggled a bit with take back your book, setting up all of them. So I was very aware, like how easy it would be um, after that to do, to do all these books. And you mentioned quite a few times throughout this uh, interview about systems um, obviously you're very methodical, it seems, when it comes to, you know, creating something that's replicable, something that you can grow and expand on that helps you nail down things that you need to do. Cause you know, we're being so busy with so much stuff. You need a way to keep track. Um, do you have any advice for sort of particular tools or things that you use that you find useful when it comes to trying to arrange everything? <laughs> oh, I know it's, it, it that is also an evolving process for me. Like I love organizational tools. Like I use the brand new one every time they come out just because I'm constantly looking for like to hone in as much as I can. Um, currently for a majority of my YouTube content and for my book production, I use Notion. 
uh, it's a free uh, workspace that you can use and you can it's make a it God space. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> when, when you're faced with a blank page on Notion, it's very overwhelming. Um, but you can do so many different things. And, and it's definitely a, a good uh, digital platform for anyone who's looking to sort of customize. Um, I've tried Asana and Trello and so you can sort of do some stuff like that in Notion, but I adore spreadsheets. So I love how I can do that in Notion. So I've used, um, prior to finding out about Notion, I had a lot of Excel spreadsheets. Um, I find I track very uh, easy that way. And um, when it comes to my to-do list, so a lot of my uh, systems live on Notion, but when it comes to my to-do list and my daily productivity and and everything like that, I tend to be very visual. I tried for a while to do um, on my iPad planning, but and I don't know how if it's my, how my brain works. But once that screen goes off, like I just forget everything. Mm-hmm. So I I've, I've gone back to a, to a notebook. Um, so it's it's right here. It's in front of me always, so I know exactly what I'm what I'm doing. So I do have that visual element, but I think. For me, setting up these systems in an easy way for me to access is absolutely key. And it always has to be front of mind. So when I open up my browser, Notion is right there at the top. So I can always just quickly access it. And as you say, that's um, been a steadily evolving process for you, because I think one thing that I see a lot of people get almost overwhelmed at when they're trying to create some kind of system is that they see other people's where it's all comprehensive and everything's linked and everything else. And they forget that, you know, you just got to start in a place and then build from that as and when you need it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I would say like start very, very much into like an easy process. Like for me, I started off at checklists um, with Notion and you can easily make a ton of checklists um, and then you can start going into the, the linking and everything. I am not like a, a Notion expert at all um, with databases or anything, but they are like, it can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's, it, it is a process where I, I was telling you the other day about Notion, like for like three months, I was like so obsessive. Every single, <laughs> I watched so many YouTube videos on Notion and I'm still not like touching uh-huh. its, you know, its ability. Um, but I would definitely like try to learn the platform too, as you go and make mistakes. And then, you know, just, I would say just constantly try to evolve your process too, until you've really honed it and then just stick with it if you can. Perfect. Well, we are narrowing down to time. So I'll ask you uh, two or one and a half more questions. And sure. then, uh, we'll round up. So my final big question is, uh, Caitlin Duncan, why do you write? Because I have to. <laughs> it's just something in me. Um, this is a really difficult career path. Um, and I wonder at least once a week what my life would look like without it. Mm-hmm. And I can't see past that question. Um, because I can't, I can't not do it. Um, I just have stories and, and love for stories in me that I just, I can't do anything else. <laughs> I resonated real hard because I've, I've had that with like moments where you're just like, oh, wouldn't it be easiest to not have this like just burning needs to constantly be creating something? Wouldn't life just be easier? And they're like, ah, it'd probably be quite boring. Yeah, you, you'd have time. Oh, like, what is time? Like, you can watch TV, <laughs> enjoy movies, you know, have a hobby. Mm-hmm. But this is like a hobby and a career. It's just, it's so muddled. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, how can people follow you and find out more about yourself and all that you're working on? 
Yeah, uh, my main hub for all of my socials and everything is at my website, uh, CaitlinDuncan.com. That's K-A-T-L-Y-N-D-U-N-C-A-N.com. Um, I'm mostly on YouTube and Instagram, um, and I have all that information on my website. Um, yeah. Beautiful. And I'll put all those links in the show notes. And Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. No worries. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. And as always, if you're looking to level up your writing and activate your author career, then head on over to activatedauthors.com to find out about all that we do in our community, our resources, and everything else. And one thing that we didn't mention is you can also find Caitlin hanging out over on our Slack group and join her alongside our other expert panelists every single month for our live member Q&As. And I will see you next week. Ukrainians are suffering. One million refugees have been forced to leave their homes. Millions of human beings are crying out for hygiene products, food and blankets. You can help. I am proud to announce the launch of our Writers for Ukraine initiative, the One Million Word Challenge. We are calling on all writers to take up arms and heed our biggest ever challenge to raise money for basic support in these unprecedented times. From Wednesday the 9th to Tuesday the 15th of March, writers from across the world will be banding together to achieve a combined word count of 1 million words. Pick up your pens, flex those fingers, donate to the cause, and write the words that will literally change the world. Writers for Ukraine. The world needs your words. Find out more at activatedauthors.com forward slash Ukraine.